You're listening to the Legal Talk Network. Hello, I'm Bob Ambrogi. And I'm Monica Bay. We've been writing about law and technology for more than 30 years. That's right. During that time, we've witnessed many changes and innovations. Technology is improving the practice of law, helping lawyers deliver their services faster and cheaper. Which benefits not only lawyers and their clients, but everyone. And moves us closer to the goal of access to justice for all. Tune in every month as we explore the new legal technology and the people behind the tech here on Law Technology Now. I'm Monica Bay, and welcome to Law Technology Now. I have a terrific guest today, Daniel Martin Katz. I love that name, also known as Dan. And you may remember him through the Reinvent Law series that he did a few years ago. And he has now moved to a new job. And I'm going to turn the mic over to him to tell a little bit about what Reinvent was and your decision to move to Chicago and what you're doing now. Well, thanks so much for having me, Monica. Reinvent Law was a, a sort of uh, effort when I was working at Michigan State to make the curriculum of the law school look more like what we were seeing in the market in terms of what market was needing a lawyer to be or a lawyer to become. And so I wanted to uh, try to have a place within the law school where we could experiment with new curriculum, where we could have students sort of engage with new ideas and uh, um, it was actually called Reinvent Law Laboratory, and the idea was the, that a sort of, you know, in the sciences, a laboratory environment is a, a place to train people to uh, explore new ideas. And so I wanted to have a, a similar sort of uh, environment inside of a law school. So we did a number of things there. There was sort of curriculum and training, and there was also we ran these conferences that were trying to build bridges between what was going on inside the legal academy and what was going on in the legal market. And so we wanted to help you know, curate a conversation about the future of the industry. And then you decided recently to make a big move to Chicago. Tell us a little bit about what made the decision to do that and what you are doing now. Yes, Chicago Kent, the new school that I'm I'm working at, um, which is the Law School of Illinois Institute of Technology. You know, as a person that's interested in legal technology and legal innovation, I would say that, you know, they were doing a lot of this stuff before it was cool. Uh, you know, they're like the hipsters of law, so to speak, you know, the, they, they were, uh, they've been working on in the legal tech space for many, many years. And so when I was at Michigan State, I would always look at Chicago Ken as a place that, you know, I was trying to help the place become. And so when I had an opportunity to go to the place that I was trying to have for my current place become, I, it was just uh, too attractive of an offer. So it was mostly more about the positive properties, you know, of, uh, of Chicago Kent rather than sort of the negative properties. We were having a lot of success at Michigan State, but just a chance to kind of come here and uh, build upon what had already been done here. Um, I can say a little bit about uh, a few initiatives here. One one thing that they're um, well known for is a, a platform called Access to Justice Author or A to J Author. And it's a software platform that allows people to in legal aid to uh, help automate some of the forms and some of the work that they're doing with their clients so they can serve more clients. Legal aid turns away like two people for every person they're able to serve. So being able to help them have better throughput is really just an opportunity to, you know, have a lot more justice in the world. And so I, that was one thing, one thing that really attracted me to hear is that that's something they've been not just talking about, but been doing. They've had 3 million people use the software. 
in the last, I think, five years. So it's, it's a pretty serious effort here. So tell us a little bit about what you are doing at the school. And I know you're about to launch a new event. And it sounded to me from looking at the material that there's multiple things. You mentioned the one now. What are some of the other things that you will be doing there? Well, this school has a, uh, has a design school similar. So Stanford has the D school. Uh, I spend some time out at Stanford, like you do, Monica, with Codex. And real close to Codex is the design school. At Stanford, well, Illinois Tech actually has a design school, and it's very longstanding. And uh, they're actually right here on the same floor that I'm on. That's another opportunity. We want to engage in sort of joint projects with them. We have a couple of things that we're working on building out. That's sort of one goal I have. Another thing I'd like to do we're working on is, and I had done a little bit of this stuff at, at Michigan State with my friend Dan Lena, who sort of took over at Michigan State after me, which is uh, uh, training students in lean thinking. And so uh, we had students at Michigan State going into uh, getting lean certifications, which were being offered on, on the main campus at Michigan State. We want to do that here also um, at Chicago Cannon. Again, uh, Illinois Tech has a history in these sorts of topics. And so the sort of the opportunity to do at a place that does a lot of STEM you know, science, technology, engineering, mathematics as, as a core function of the university and has design and has sort of a engineering or process improvement sort of methodology that's longstanding. And then, you know, a lot of entrepreneurship, both coming out of this school and in the uh, broader Chicago area, it's, it was just, it's too attractive of an, of an opportunity uh, to try to create a different type of lawyer and try to change the legal profession in meaningful ways. And that sounds like it was a wonderful link from what you were doing before, as you were saying. A couple of weeks ago, you were down at ILTA and did the Tuesday keynote. And ILTA is the International Legal Technology Association. Every year they do a massive program. They now call it ILTACON. That's usually the last week of August and amazing. And one of the traditions they do is to have keynotes on most of the uh, days. It's a, like a five-day event. And you did the Tuesday keynote called Measure Twice, Cut Once, Solving the Legal Profession's Biggest Problems Together. And I know it's going to sound like I'm sucking up to you, but I wrote this on the Codex blog, so I'll just repeat it, which is I thought it was the best keynote that I've heard at Codex, probably second only to the astronaut that talked about duct tape. It was so good. And I think you did a fantastic job. And from my point of view, you took us to the next level. Can you tell us about what your approach is and the upcoming program you're going to be doing in November, which links into what you're doing? I just found it absolutely fantastic. And I will turn the mic over to you to really give us a deep dive on what that's about. Well, I well, thank you very much. That's uh, that's uh, more generous than it deserves, but I, I really do appreciate it. I spent a lot of time trying to prepare those comments, so I'm glad that you know you thought they were well put together. Because I mean, I just sort of spend a lot of time trying to take stock of what I observe and kind of try to draw parallels to what I see in kind of the rest of society. And um, in a lot of ways, things in law look like things in other sectors of the economy. You know, there's been a lot of interest. Uh, I mean, it's an interest of mine in sort of artificial intelligence, you know, sometimes called sarcastically robot lawyers. But to me, that's an important conversation. But financialization of law is a much more fundamental disruptor, if you will, than robot lawyers. And that's something we want to explore in this event. That I, I explored it in the keynote, and this, we're going to explore in this event um, that we're calling 
Fin Legal Tech, um, so which is kind of, you know, there's FinTech, which is, uh, so FinTech sort of has two big branches to it. And one branch is about sort of removing socially useless frictions from typically financial laden processes. So you see stuff like peer-to-peer lending, which is challenging traditional lending institutions, or you see people removing friction in, in payment processes. So things like Square and in when in the developing world, particularly in Africa, M-Pesa is a mobile payment system, a currency that's where you pay all through your phone. But you see examples in fintech, that's kind of one branch. The other branch is characterizing exotic forms of risk that historically have been things that people thought you couldn't predict and trying to develop financial and or insurance products around those types of risks. And so when you look at law and in legal tech, you see a lot of similar parallels, at least I do. And so we're calling this sort of intersection of the two fin legal tech. And that's what we want to explore. Um, We have kind of both of those branches represented. So if you look in law, you know, we have things like litigation finance, which is explicitly fintech of a thing in law, people trying to predict outcomes in lawsuits and basically turning that into an asset class like a security that you can try to predict and price. And uh, um, there's other examples um, in the insurance space. Um, So if you do you look at like mergers and acquisitions, M&A, you, you see uh, uh, insurance products around things like reps and warranties. So that's a thing where, uh, you know, an insurance company will essentially sell a policy to someone about the representations that the company has made coming out of the, even after due diligence, this is an insurance product that sits on top essentially of that due diligence process. And it's it's an example where Law didn't really figure out how to better characterize the risk than, say, a large insurance company who's selling a policy in that space, which I find very interesting because, uh, you know, what they could in principle, you know, in a different world had been something where, you know, that could have been something lawyers were doing or law firms or whatever. And again, that would be in a different world. But just conceptually, we have all these places that I see where we've left all types of opportunities on the table because we're only just thinking about being lawyers in the most traditional sense. But what we're not doing is solving for the real problem because the reason somebody hires a lawyer is, in my view, two major things, characterizing legal and other classes of risks and managing complexity. Those are kind of the two dominant themes I see when somebody hires a lawyer, and that's the actual problem being solved for. And so fintech, to me, and finlegal tech is a dominant threat to some aspects of what lawyers are doing because what they're actually selling is risk mitigation, but not in the ways that you would traditionally see done in other sectors of the economy. So if you look at the way we underwrite risks in outside of law is we, we have all type, we build statistical models. We convene panels of experts sometimes to do exotic, you know, to write an exotic form of insurance. If you're like Lloyd's of London or something like this, you know, these might be the ways that you'd write an insurance policy in something that's never been done before. And we're not like doing car accidents where there's a sort of known rate of risk and known rate of hazard. But then you look at law and we say, we hired the lawyer essentially to do risk mitigation, but all, all the, and I'm really channeling my friend Paul Lippi when I say this, is all people, the lawyers are good at doing is identifying that there are risks, but the great lawyers need to be focused on pricing the risk because the business people say, of course, I know there's risk here. I'm already aware of that. What I need to know is how risky is this and try to make sure that you're not taking out outsized risk relative to the return that you're receiving on some some action you're about to take. That's just, to me, not the way the conversation typically goes now. Um, it's not the way this, the lawyer-client exchange at the 
kind of at the enterprise level. It doesn't sound like that at all. This pricing of risk. Now, you go back to my M&A example. Here you've got somebody else, a third party comes in, a big insurance company comes in and sells reps and warranties insurance because they're actually solving the pricing risk problem for the parties involved, the person selling their company or something like that. When we were at this year's Future Law, Jim Sandman did the keynote, and it was amazing, absolutely amazing. And one of the themes that he had, I think, works really well with yours, which is the concept of if we're going to change the structure of big law in particular, you did a lot of conversations about this in the um, reInvent era, that we have to look at changing the approach to have big law wanting to drag things on because they make more money by the hour. And this has been something we've been talking about for my entire career. I've said this a hundred times. For 17 years, I've been saying that the billable... Might as well go for 101 today. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's like crazy. But one of the themes that Jim had was to suggest that we may be at a point where we simply have to leapfrog the lawyers themselves and get the malpractice folks, the insurance folks, who ironically are also part of the problem that he said when he was looking at what's causing problems to get services, but also can be a heavy force in improving it. Because there's, like you've been saying on the money side of this thing, if they are being able to get better, faster, cheaper things, it helps everybody. I've sort of rambled a little bit, but do you see alliances between what Jim is saying and what you're saying? No, I do. I very much do. I mean, I think the idea is that we want to have a better ability to predict and characterize a whole range of questions in law where right now we're just letting you know human experts sort of do the risk characterization. And and the problem is, if you wanted to call that insurance, that's underwriting under the judgment of single individuals, which is not, I mean, if you were an insurance company operating under that basis, you wouldn't last very long. We would, I mean, we're long past that anything on the insurance side. In fact, in most major suites of judgment in the world, we don't run things this way. But here in law, we have this odd thing where we're doing manual underwriting with the cult of single person's expertise driving very significant decisions. And I, I view that as not a particularly sound practice. So that's a critique to offer. Now the question is, how do you fix that? Mm-hmm. And I think if you're going to offer the objection, you have some obligation to offer a way forward. So let's look at how underwriting, manual underwriting works. Let's say you wanted to write an insurance policy and in something that really there hasn't been done before, right? I mean, again, auto insurance is an absolutely almost no margin business because we have so much data and it's so well understood and characterizable that, you know, there's massive competition on it. There's no margins to be made. The memorial margins are in these exotic offerings where there hasn't been a lot of history. And again, litigation finance is an example in our space where the margins people are making are pretty substantial because these were things people would say, oh, well, you could never predict the outcome of this type of case. This case is very exotic. You know, if you're a financier and you're like, yes, I can actually, you don't even want to convince anybody that other than the person you're trying to take this away from that the that anything else is true. You want to actually simultaneously stoke that idea that this stuff is uncharacterizable, but say, well, fine, if it's uncharacterizable, then you should be more than happy to offboard the risk. Meanwhile, you actually know the rate of risk, and you're, you have a huge margin as a result of that. 
that's a kind of high level conversation, but there's a million little things that look exactly like that as far as I'm concerned, where people say you can't model it, but you really can actually. It doesn't mean you nail it on every individual case. You nail it over the portfolio of cases, over the portfolio of transactions. That's the kind of, we need to move away from this sort of everything is a one-off, a special snowflake to thinking about things as portfolios, thinking about things as tranches of risk. We're not quite there yet, but that's, but I already gave you some concrete examples where people have already figured out how to do it. Litigation finance, reps and warranties insurance. Right? I mean, there's several other examples that we'll bring out at the conference where, where people, I mean, even an, an AFA, right? An alternative fee arrangement is a form of self-insurance uh, in the extreme sense, because you're saying if there's a cost overrun, you know, we're essentially going to eat the difference. Well, now you've taken a law firm and turned them into an insurance company because mm-hmm. they're self-insuring the risk. But then you start asking yourself, you know, everything else is self-insurance too. Every piece of litigation that is on my books is self-insured because I have to eat the liability if I get it wrong. So let's uh, shift to the actual event that's coming up in November. Tell us a little bit about it. And if folks are interested, how can they attend and what can they expect? And how about talking a little bit about the younger lawyers who may be new to this as well as the baby boomers, because they're the ones who are, who are starting to leave, but they're still many of them are still in control. What what advice do you have for the folks who are have been in the trenches for a long time? Well, I'll just start with the basic facts: is that the conference is you can find it at finlegaltechconference.com, finlegaltechconference.com, and thanks to our sponsors, the tickets are free to come to the conference. Who are your sponsors? Our sponsors are the law school. Next Law Labs, which is a uh, innovation arm of Denton's, uh-huh. the world's largest law firm. And um, we just have another sponsor that'll be joining us because it's soon to be announced, which is uh, one of the litigation finance firms here in Chicago. Great. Will be one of our sponsors. So so they're helping make it so that we can offer this as a free event. It's an educational event to try to have people who are doing a bunch of this financialization of the law explain what they're doing, why they're doing it, and how they're doing it. And so I think it, it'll be a, something uh, that'll be educational to a lot of folks. I guess to answer your other questions, why we offer these events in some sense is to curate a community. But the other reason is just to bring people up to speed because everybody's really busy with all the things they're just trying to do that are immediately in their field of vision that they may not be seeing these bigger, these bigger sort of, let's say, tectonic plates and how they're moving. But I sort of am in a privileged position as a legal educator who gets to sort of study the market for a living. And I just see this as a very dominant and emergent phenomenon that you're seeing sort of creep in in various sorts of ways. People trying to do better on a whole range of, of questions. And the, the most well-known maybe of these would be something like corporate legal, a clock group or the ACC version of legal operations. That's an example where people are trying to get better data and better understanding and better predictability about what lawyers are doing, how well they're doing it, and how much it ought to cost to do that stuff, whatever the thing in question is. I would totally agree with you on the the whole procurement thing, and it's really been rising. And one of the things you just mentioned really strikes me because I went to a conference in New York about six months ago that was put on by Sylvia Hodges Silverstein, and it's Buying Legal Counsel. And it was an amazing conference and very, very interesting to see big changes in the corporate council. 
And we've also seen a lot of movement in the big four accounting firms. I just sense that they have their eyes on the corporate council. And I think the corporate council is so fed up with a lot of the lawyers that there's really some traction there. Does that arena fit in with what you're doing with the work you've been telling us about today? Yeah. I mean, if you think about what the accounting firms, first of all, you know, there was a great article in The Economist, which I always like to reference when I you know, go out and give presentations just to show you what scale is all about. Like the top 10 law firms in the world taken together are smaller than Deloitte, basically. Wow. I didn't know that. Scale, there's scale there that's like, you know, I think Deloitte is 200,000 employees or something like this. It's an astronomical sort of wow. circumstance. Just scale there is at a whole nother level. So there's a lot of pressure in that on their side to find new horizons. Imagine you have an organization that's that large. And, you know, I talked to a lot of managing partners of law firms and they're always talking about, you know, I got to feed the beast when what they mean is I got to get enough work to keep everybody happy and keep things moving forward. Imagine you got to feed something that is, you know, 10 times the size, 20 times the size, 50 times the size or whatever of your law firm. It's a different scale. So what happens is you start getting very aggressive at finding new markets. Then you look at what lawyers are doing. You think, well, uh, yeah, there's, there's certain aspects of what lawyers are doing that aren't even really the practice of law. They're just sort of adjacent to the practice of law, and maybe the accounting firms can get in on it. And they've been in on it for a while now. And what they're very good at doing and what law firms historically have been very bad at doing is productizing some aspect of service provision. And so what, what they love to do is create some sort of like a software offering embedded in the client and then sell a bunch of services around the software offering. So they love these sort of, you know, beachheads or tentacles into their clients where they, they sort of get some, some sort of point into one of their Fortune 500 clients or whatever, and then they sell a whole bunch of services around the, yeah. the software offering. And you look at law, we don't really have great examples of, you know, you can find an example or two, but as a general proposition, it is a service-only business. I think that the one thing that uh, and I've gone around many places and suggested this, is that people need to figure out better how to create these productized offerings that allow them to sell services around the products. It makes you so much stickier with your client than if you're just a service provider. Yeah. Because if you're just a service provider, I can find another service provider. It's not, I'd have to believe that you're the best person in the world for X. Otherwise, it's just a question of cost and benefits and payoffs. But I don't, I mean, there's just not... There's this loyalty that you is not ever present in a situation where you're just a service provider. And again, that's why they're good at doing this product service hybrids. Well, we're running out of time. Is there anything that I haven't asked you that you wanted to share with our audience? Well, I, I guess I want to encourage people to uh, come to our event on November 4th. As I mentioned earlier, there's this two branches of fintech. I've taken a lot of time talking about the financialization part or the sort of insurance slash risk modeling or risk characterization, but I do want to also mention the kind of frictionless law side of the equation. Um, we're going to have a number of speakers sort of talk about applications of the blockchain, which I think is something uh, that lawyers should want, transactional lawyers in particular, but other types of lawyers as well, um, should try to learn more about because I think that there's a range of reasonable, there's a bunch of applications it wouldn't help for, but there's a bunch of reasonable applications. It reminds me, there's a lot of hype around it, but it reminds me of sort of the early days of the internet where people didn't really even know quite what all it was going to mean, but you're sort of knew there was a there there and, and we didn't know how it was all going to play out. This feels a lot like that to me. Me too. Where it's not even clear what all the answers to it are, but you can see 
that dominant feature is it's solving for trust and it's solving for uh, trust problems, which we currently use lawyers for, and it's solving for creating, uh, basically removing frictions from friction-laden processes, which is a big feature of FinTech. So I wanted to just put that in there as a plug for the event. Beyond that, I'd like to just um, have folks check us out. My new venture here at Chicago Kent called The Law Lab, which sort of pays homage to what I was doing before at Michigan State, but it's called thelawlab.com, and it's part of the law school here, and we're focusing on this legal innovation education technology, process improvement, entrepreneurship as part of a legal education. And we think that that's a pretty cool and distinct offering out there. And uh, we'd love to work with people who are like-minded. And uh, we're also interested in employers who are looking to hire a different type of lawyer and a different type of law student. So uh, if you're interested, please feel free to uh, drop me a line. I'd love to love to talk to anybody who's interested in uh, uh, exploring any of that further. And Dan, how would people reach you? Um, yep. You can get me, uh, just hit me up on my Gmail. I just, uh, daniel.martin.cats at gmail.com, daniel.martin.cats at gmail.com. Or you can hit me up on my uh, Twitter at computational on Twitter at computational on Twitter or on my blog, computationallegalstudies.com. Well, Dan, thank you so much for your time today. And again, congratulations for a phenomenal keynote. It was just terrific. I'm really looking forward to the conference and the very best of luck in getting it organized. Thanks so much, Monica. Uh, Look forward to seeing you soon. Thank you. I'm Monica Bay, and thank you for listening to Law Technology Now. more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Subscribe via iTunes and RSS. Find us on Twitter and Facebook or download our free Legal Talk Network app in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thank you.